This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Do you long to understand the Bible in a deeper way? The ESV Study Bible was created by a diverse team of leading Bible scholars and teachers and features a wide array of study tools, including extensive study notes, topical theology articles, Bible character profiles, and more, making it a valuable resource for serious readers, students, and teachers of God's Word. Pick up a copy of the ESV Study Bible wherever Bibles are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Books, presenting the Gospel of Our King by Bruce Ashford and Heath Thomas. An accessible overview showing how the Bible is one overarching story that addresses every aspect of our mission and worldview. Pre-order a copy at bakeracademic.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Jesus never married. Paul commended singleness as preferable to marriage, at least for some. And for centuries and still today in the Roman Catholic Church, priests were expected to be celibate. But in much of the world today, the pendulum has swung to the opposite side. We look with skepticism on singles especially if they serve in ministry. Maybe there's something wrong with them, we assume. Spiritual maturity is sometimes equated with marriage and then with children. And in some sense, that's not necessarily wrong, because God can and does use those roles and responsibilities to sanctify believers. But such a view still reflects many cultural assumptions not necessarily shaped by Scripture. Sam Alberry has contributed a timely word for this discussion in his new book, Seven Myths About Singleness. Sam is a pastor, global speaker for Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and an editor for the Gospel Coalition. He argues that neither marriage nor singleness can satisfy our longings. Only Christ can do that. And I love this quote from his book that sums up his whole argument. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. How true. It all points to Christ. Sam joins me on the Gospel Coalition podcast to discuss these myths, why we don't talk enough about the challenges of marriage, the need for intimate friendships, sexual temptation, and much more. Thank you, Sam, for joining me on the Gospel Coalition podcast. Hey, Colin, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Sam, some regard celibacy as actually harmful denial of our human needs. They say it's unfair to demand and unbearable to experience. So how do you counsel singles pressured by this message? Thank you. Yes, that's a that's a common way to think. And I think it says far more about our culture today than it, it shows us about singleness itself. Um, in our culture today, um, sexual and romantic fulfillment are seen as being essential to human flourishing. And therefore, the prospect of, of that being um, 
inaccessible or or denied to someone feels like we're we're sentencing that person to lead a very diminished human existence. Uh, it's it's an act of cruelty. So I think what I'd say to someone who's who's kind of worrying about that and wrestling with that is is two things really. The first is that the New Testament gives us a very very positive view of singleness. Uh, Jesus himself, as you remind us, was was single. Um, and yet he was the most fully human person who ever lived. So we can't say that singleness is dehumanizing without ultimately saying that Jesus was subhuman. Um, moreover, Paul, the apostle, speaks very positively um, about singleness in First Corinthians chapter seven. So I'd say that. And I would say that actually marriage itself is also a very good gift from God, but but isn't easy. And, and Paul actually says in First Corinthians seven that. Marriage comes with certain certain trials, and he commends singleness as a way of being spared certain trials. So neither is is seen as the kind of solution to the problems of the other. When we move from being single to being married, we're not moving from having problems to not having problems. We're simply exchanging the challenges of singleness and the joys of singleness with the challenges of marriage and the joys of marriage. I think, Sam, that might have been perhaps the chief takeaway that I had from your book. I don't think I've actually ever thought about it that way. Why do you think evangelicals in particular seem to talk so much about the challenges of singleness but not of marriage? I think we're not very good at being open generally. Plus, I, I think we've sort of we've imbibed this idea that marriage is something you kind of graduate into. It's a, scene, it's a, a sort of sign of spiritually coming of age. And so I think that makes it hard for people to admit that sometimes marriage isn't easy. Um, so it, it's interesting. I, I think we often compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage, and we forget that there are ups of singleness that Paul talks about, and there are also downs of marriage. And I, I suspect the social media age hasn't helped with this because the only kind of side of marriage we see on our social media feeds is the kind of is the highlights and we we just see that those moments on facebook or on instagram when the kids are being precocious when the family meal looks delicious when the vacation is is looking perfect and we kind of forget those are edited highlights and what you're not seeing is the is that the kind of family arguments you're not seeing the the kind of the kid in tears because they don't want to do something that mum and dad are making them do. You don't see that the strains in the marriage. Um, so I, I think we just need to see that singleness and marriage, both of them are intrinsically good and both of them come with particular challenges. And the challenges of singleness are different to the challenges of marriage. But I don't think we're very good at being open about some of the challenges of marriage. We've kind of built it up that it's meant to be this amazing, fulfilling thing that kind of completes us and fulfills us. Well, it just seems to be dangerous in general to compare your lows to somebody else's highs. And like you pointed out, where social media is almost all highs, that's a problem. It hadn't occurred to me until you'd mentioned that, that when I look at my single friends in my church, they seem to always be on vacation. They're always skiing somewhere. They're always traveling around the world. They're always seeing cool stuff. They're dropping everything and just heading off around the world on some exciting adventure while I'm home and I'm taking care of the kids. But, of course, they can't 
quite see some of those or they they'll see some of my joys on social media but i also won't see some of those meals that they eat alone mm. or other challenges that they see it just seems to be you're making a big point about comparison in general um, that I think the Apostle Paul wanted us to address through that contentment in any and all circumstances. But I wanted to ask you, this was one of the standout parts of the book. You quote one pastor as saying, I just see singleness as a disaster. And I'm just wondering, how do we get to that point where we stray so far from the explicit biblical teaching on singleness and marriage? I mean, I think we can we can agree that there could be some cases where singleness would be a disaster, but overall, I don't know how you square that scripturally. I think, yeah, I think trying to be generous to that that particular pastor, I suspect it's it's looking at the abuse of something and, you know, damning something by how it's abused. So there are obviously a lot of people today in our own, own culture who, who, who don't want commitment, who don't want responsibility and kind of perpetuate their adolescence. And in that sense, if by singleness we're meaning that, that is a disaster, but that the fault of that isn't singleness. The fault of that is singleness being used in an ungodly and a, in a self-centered kind of way, just as there are plenty of people who get married for self-centered reasons or who are unpleasant to their spouse or who think marriage is going to be, you know, is all about them being served by their spouse. And you wouldn't say, well, marriage itself is a disaster. You would say some of those people are a disaster. Some of their marriages are a disaster. But precisely because they're not doing marriage the way it's meant to be done. And similarly, people who are single purely for for reasons of self-centeredness are not doing singleness the way the Bible says we should do singleness. Paul's whole point in commending singleness is not that, hey, you get to do whatever you want. You can be free. But actually, you get the flexibility now to serve Christ in a way that can be more wholehearted and single minded than if you were married. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned some of the benefits, the benefits that accrue to the church for people who serve through singleness in those in those situations. But explain how friendship intimacy can help us to see the livability of singleness. I think that's one thing that certainly is a source of a lot of fears for people when it comes to singleness. It certainly is. And I've heard a number of people talk about singleness as as being doomed to a life of loneliness and a life without love. And again, it reflects something that is very particular to our own cultural moment, um, where we have so collapsed intimacy and sex into one another that we don't really conceive any more of, of forms of intimacy that aren't romantic or aren't sexual. Whereas that the Bible gives us, I think, just much broader categories of intimacy than we typically see available to us in our own culture. And one of those is, as you've mentioned, friendship and the bible has a really high view of friendship we tend to have a a relatively low um, view of friendship because we we think of it as being the kind of again the thing you graduate out of when you get into a a romantic relationship or when you get married and it's a very superficial thing often friendship Um, you know we have friends on facebook simply by giving them access to our our contact details and to our home page but in the Bible, friendship is is something far, far deeper. It's it's a soul to soul relationship. A, a friend is someone who knows the inner you, the hidden you, the secret you, the person who knows what's really going on. It's someone you disclose your innermost thoughts to. And so when we when we see friendship in that light, it, we, we realize it's it is very, very intimate. 
and it, it's something we are designed to enjoy and to experience not just if we're single but but if we're married as well we we all need this gift of being deeply known and deeply loved by other people and friendship is is meant to be one of the primary ways in which that takes place so that means for those of us who are single we shouldn't be feeling lonely uh, we should be trying to cultivate that kind of deep friendship but one of the problems is I don't think that's on the radar of, of many of our churches. And we need to, I think, rethink our approach to friendship, we need to rethink our approach to, to church life as a body, as a family together, so that people can experience biblically appropriate and healthy kinds of intimacy. Go ahead and get practical there, Sam, maybe just in general, but then specifically for men, how men can forge more intimacy in friendship. Yeah, it's it's difficult because obviously different stages of life um, can affect how we go about doing this. Most of us, if we go to university and, and that kind of period of life, friendship is so easy because we're, we're all in each other's lives anyway. Everyone's around, everyone's available to, to, to hang out and spend time. My experience seeing this with, with many other people is that generally when you get into your 30s and people start to become married and there are mortgages, there are kids, there are more responsibilities. People are just not as available for friendship as they would have been in their early 20s. And so I've heard a number of guys say that it's actually, it's quite hard to make new friends after your kind of late 20s um, because you're kind of locked into work and home and family routines. It's hard just to get to, to meet new people, let alone get to know new people. So that that can be a significant constraint. And I've, a number of people have said to me how it's just unusual these days to make new friends when once you're past a certain age in life. So I think there's a there's a challenge. There. This is something the whole church, I think, needs to uh, to realize and to try to address and to facilitate, because it does none of us any good to have a, a lack of friendship. And that, that it, that's as much a problem for married people as it is for single people. So I think we need to give more space in our church life for people to be getting to know each other, that our meetings aren't always just about a particular functionality or a particular task that we're doing together, but to, to create spaces. And it tends to be harder for men and women more generally. So particularly create spaces for men where they can grow relationally, whether that's through my own church at home having a men's breakfast event once a once every couple of months or so, or we have a regular men's evening every again every month or so that just gives space for guys to be eating together and, and maybe having a discussion or something. But it just gives people a chance to get past the kind of superficial who are you, how are you, what do you do, I'm fine type conversations. That can take time, but also as believers, we I think we can form deep friendships very quickly just by virtue of the fact that as followers of Christ, we we already share so many very deep things. And it, it's not difficult sometimes to to begin to kind of express those things and to be a bit more open with each other. I think one of the issues is, and this is a massive generalization, but people often observe that women tend to be just tend to be better at speaking from the heart to the heart than men typically. So again, I think, guys, it's harder for us, but we need to, to work hard at maybe just 
it's another guy we get on well with at church that we can pray with every once in a while and that that might be one of the ways we begin to deepen the friendship or a bible study group where we we're talking about the things of the lord with with other brothers things again that just give us a way of beginning to speak at a slightly more personal level than simply talking about how work's going or sport or whatever whatever else it might be well i think this is a related issue here and this is maybe the the flashpoint of discussion around so many of these issues do you think sam that evangelicals have a problem with idolizing the nuclear family um um, i I think we probably do actually um and it's difficult because obviously the the family is a great thing it's a a god-given thing and it's but because something's good doesn't mean it can't become an idol um, many of our idols tend to be good things that we're just turning into ultimate things. But I think, again, it, it just helps to to let the Bible course correct how we think about family. Uh, we tend to hear the, the word family and assume, again, the nuclear family, we assume that's what God means by family. But in, in many ancient cultures and many cultures today, actually, in other parts of the world, people live family life in a much broader way. Families not just mum, dad and 2.3 kids, but it, it tends to be the, the wider family, the aunts and the uncles, the cousins, and those who are kind of honorary aunts and uncles in the in the family life as well. People just tend to do life in a, in a within a broader circle of, of community than we tend to. So I think one of the things that we've done is we've we've kind of got this idea that the nuclear family is meant to be self-sufficient and self-contained, that it's the basic unit in which you do life. And often, sadly, the basic unit in which you do church, which means I think we have a lot of nuclear families that are struggling because they, I don't think we are designed to be self-contained in that way. And I see a lot of parents increasingly coping with the busyness of family life, you know, after school programs for their kids and Life is just, there's about 15 years where all you're doing is running kids back and forth between things and just trying to keep up with that is enough, let alone trying to build friendships with anybody else. So I think we do need to to step back and think, well, hang on a sec, family's not just the nuclear family. There are, there are significant primary responsibilities we have within a marriage and, and to our to our kids. But actually, family's a broader concept in the Bible, which includes the fellowship of the saints that we we gather with Sunday by Sunday that includes other people as who who may not be blood relatives but who are nevertheless family to us and i think if we take it in that broader way it makes it actually makes it more manageable because there are more people involved that there's there's more of a team um not there you know there are no two people who can be everything their kids need them to be and, and therefore to have the input and support of the wider church family of, of aunts and uncles, whether literal aunts and uncles or, or honorary aunts and uncles, actually really helps. It helps the family and it helps other people as well. Well, give us some concrete advice there on that on that uh, score there, Sam. What are, what are the best things, the best things married couples and families can do to love and care for their single brothers and sisters, and I should be clear, in ways that will also benefit them? Married the, the benefit the married couples and families. Yeah, and this is the, the, the wonderful thing about God's economy on this is that everyone's a winner um, if we do things God's way. So I think 
again, just thinking, well, my family isn't just the people who have the same last name as me and who live under the same roof as me. My family is the people I share the Lord's table with. It's the people who were baptized into the same name as me, people I gather with Sunday by Sunday. So trying to to make that not just a a theoretical nicety, but but part of our lived reality. And so folding people into the life of our nuclear family, that we don't just exist as a as a single unit, but we, we do things with others on a regular basis. And not just in a entertaining others very occasionally and putting on a nice show kind of way, but actually folding people into real life. So that that might be as simple as something a, a group of us do back um, in my home where there's there's a gang of us who we always go on vacation for a week every summer. Um, there's two families and about four or five singles, depending on the on the year. And we all go on vacation together for a week. And the singles love it because we get to, to do we've got people to go on vacation with. The kids love it because there's a whole ton of other people to kind of play with and to muck around with. The parents love it because they can get a bit of a break as well. And other people are helping with looking after kids or playing with them or with the cooking and and all that kind of stuff. It really does seem to be a win-win. And I think we can take some of that model into the kind of week-to-week regular life as well, where it's not that we're adding something additional to our already full schedules it's that we are doing what we already do but involving more people in that which may end up meaning that we have slightly less to do because there are more people involved so there are families at home where you know I've I've sometimes helped with the school run if I know they're going to have a very busy week that's something I I feel able to say listen I I can help you out that would be at least one thing less for you to do Um, or they've said hey would you better help taking someone to to their music lesson this week or or I'll maybe it'll be that I come around and I cook lunch for the family on a Sunday or one evening during the week because it's going to be easier for me to come to them than than it will be for all of them to come to me but I, I just think we can involve one another more often more regularly in the normal day-to-day stuff of life and in my experience, it's in that normal day-to-day stuff of life. That's where life really happens. So yes, having having the very nice rare occasion when you have people around and you do a special meal and everything's perfect is nice. But actually real life happens in that kind of day-to-day normal stuff. And the more I think we open that up to other people, the more we find real relationships, real friendships developing and building. Uh, one of the areas that we have to talk about is, of course, sexual temptation. One of the things that I think we have to be able to point out that I often hear talked about in premarital counseling and things like that is that marriage does not end your sexual temptation. There are any number of different things that happen in marriage that that uh, I mean that preclude sex either for for a time or in certain extreme instances permanently. Mm. Um, So what are some things that we can do to be able to help each other to flee sexual temptation? Yes, and and thank you for reminding us that that's not just uh, an issue for single people. As you say, it's an issue for for just about everybody. Um, there, There are a number of things. Obviously, what we've just been talking about 
um, should actually help in its own way. I think having healthy forms of intimacy can help be a good guard against craving unhealthy forms of intimacy. And to feel as though we are, we, to feel as though we really are known and understood, that there's a group of people who really do get us and value us and love us, can reduce some of the need some people may feel for unhealthy intimacy, and, and often that ends up being expressed and desired in, in quite sexual ways. So one way of fleeing sexual temptation is to build up healthy intimacy. Um, it obviously it always helps to have people who know our weaknesses and can be who know how to pray for us and how to encourage us. So again, friendship is key there. Um, I'm very grateful for some brothers who who know what my temptations are like, who I can be very open with when I'm going through a season of temptation and, and can say, listen, this is what's going on. You know, I'm going to need your, your support and encouragement and accountability. Um, so those things will all will also help. But I think you're right that marriage is not necessarily going to provide sexual fulfillment. Um, no, no marriage is perfect and no sexual relationship is perfect. And so while someone may have a very healthy marriage and a very healthy sex life within that marriage, there may still be significant kinds of temptation. And so having both the clarity of what the Bible says about the, the seriousness of sexual sin, having people who can stand alongside us, encourage us at times, rebuke us when that's needed as well. But just having healthy intimacy, I think, is the best way of guarding against unhealthy intimacy. Uh, last question I have here for you, Sam. I really liked how you compared and contrasted the ministries of Tim Keller, who's married, and John Stott, who never married. Well, tell us how their example, each of them in these different ways, has instructed you. Yeah, they're very different men with, with somewhat different ministries, and yet both so powerfully used by the Lord, and both powerfully used globally. Um, John Stott's singleness meant that his capacity to travel was was obviously much greater so he was particularly in his latter decades he was on the road almost all the time um, he would kind of all souls was his anchor point back in london but he would be traveling globally and in, in god's providence he was having that global ministry at a time when evangelicalism globally needed that kind of leadership um, he was able to encourage brothers and sisters in, in places like Australia or Latin America in in preaching, in theology, in ministry, which he, he just would not have been able to do if he was married or shouldn't have been trying to do if he was married. Um, Keller being married has less capacity to just hop on a plane every third day, but you can see the ways in which his marriage has fed into and sustained his ministry. I think he would be the first to say that he couldn't be doing what he what he does as a pastor and as a Christian leader were it not for his wife, Kathy. And Tim can only be Tim because Kathy's Kathy. And so his marriage has actually enabled his ministry. It's it's fed into it. So it's it's just lovely seeing how both singleness and marriage each um, can reinforce and strengthen ministry. Neither is a an alternative to ministry in that sense. But in each case, the person has been able to do what they've done by virtue of, in Stott's case, being single, and in Keller's case, by being married. 
what they will do will be different because of those two things. But at the same time, they couldn't be used in the way they have been used were it not for the fact that they were in one case single and in the other case married. Well, I hope people have gotten a good taste of what they can get in the book. The book is Seven Myths About Singleness. The author and my guest here on the Gospel Coalition podcast has been Sam Alberry. Sam, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Colin. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.